Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. If you enjoy this talk and want to hear other talks like it, don't forget to subscribe. Today's episode features Father Robert Gall, Associate Professor of Ethics at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross. He is also the Vice Director of the Markets, Culture, and Ethics Research Center, Founding Vice Chair of the Program of Church Management, and a research affiliate at Harvard's Human Flourishing Program. In this talk, we will hear him discuss whether or not Thomists should use the word gender. Thanks very much. It's a real pleasure and honor to be with old friends and new friends and in this uh, prestigious uh, place of uh, formation and research. Uh, But I am with fear and trembling about this topic and with this audience. Uh, but uh, I'm trying to interiorly transform that fear and trembling, re- trembling really into a, a desire to hear from you and to hear your response so that I can think through these topics more clearly. Since I'm working on something bigger having to do with gender and this is just a little feature of it. So uh, I thought that uh, entitling this with question would be a good way to provoke you all and to draw people in. Uh, how about a raise of hands? How many of you say no? <laughs> Oh, and maybe maybe there's some who are just, uh, how many say yes? Yeah, apart from grammar. Uh, apart from grammar, <laughs> yes, okay, okay. But even then, uh, of course, a lot of people will be an issue. Okay, uh, and there seem to be a lot of absenteeism, a lot of absenteeism, which is people who are not ready to, that makes me uh, feel more comfortable that this is more of an exploration. Now, I'm not sure who designed this flyer for this event. Christine. And who chose the, the, the painting? And I, I don't know the painting. Um, you, you chose it, Christine? Where is it from? Um, uh, Chapel of St. Basil, somewhere else, not here. <laughs> <laughs> Chapel of St. Basil, well, it's very nice and beautiful, and it's evocative of features of a bar relief, which is on the facade of the Cathedral of Orvieto, that I find really striking, that is connected to St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I'm not totally sure here of the history, but I think that bas-relief was there when St. Thomas was there, but I'm not sure of that. Uh, it's, I don't know if anyone can either confirm or deny that. The whole front of the cathedral, the Duomo of Orvieto, is uh, sculpted in stone and marble, and if you happen to go there, it's a good thing to go there in the afternoon when the sun is shining on that facade and it's really spectacular. But in it there, I find especially striking, but there is, well, it's especially striking, uh, the creation of Eve from Adam's rib, but then the prior scene, because there's different scenes of all going through the history of salvation, the prior scene is of God creating Adam, and I find it uh, really striking how God and Adam look very much alike, and they have the same hairstyle, the same beard, (laughs) and God is looking in Adam's face as though he's looking in a mirror. And he's like putting on the final touches to make sure that the mm. resemblance is just uh, just right, just there. Well, this uh, gives you my email address if you want it. And I'm glad that we're on Zoom and there's some people who are connected digitally. Um, now, surely, uh, I think we'd all agree that St. Thomas Aquinas deals with sexual difference. He deals with sex, uh, the difference between male and female. And he deals with this in a way that is not very extensive. I'm not aware, aware of any like in-depth systematic treatment where St. Thomas deals with it. Probably the most important uh, locus is that Summa Theologiae 
uh, Prima Par's question 92 that deals with the creation of woman, which is pretty famous also in the commentary on this issue of sexual difference and uh, is very much related to that icon that we have for the, the flyer that deals with uh, explicitly whether or not it was opportune for God to have created Eve from Adam's rib. And really beautiful, I think, the consideration that Thomas very courageously makes right there regarding the um, convenience, the um, fittingness that God created Eve from Adam's rib and not from his foot or from his head. Uh, so that uh, Eve would be like him, would be equal to him in dignity, and that there would be a, um, the, I'm not sure that I'll, I'll say the Latin correctly, I think it's coniuncio socialis, an alliance, a social alliance between the two in their resembling one another. Of course, uh, there is a reference to headship and uh, the fact that Here's the, the issue that is in all of the literature discussing this, the having to do not with the, not with the equality in nature, but with respect to a, whether or not there is some difference in power between the male and the female. And certainly there is a, a difference in power. I think that's pretty obvious. Then the question is, what kind of difference is there in that power and whether or not that difference in power indicates some sort of inferiority or superiority? Of course, um, I think I can say, of course, that there is a subordination and a kind of sense of hierarchy that permeates those texts in Aquinas, particularly in the Summa Priyampara's question 92. The question of subordination is whether or not that implies some kind of inferiority. And regarding that, there is a whole lot of discussion. So I brought in these other references uh, to texts of Aquinas that are, uh, have to do with especially the generation of the human being. Uh, I was going to say man, but one has to be careful with the language. Uh, by man, I would have meant homo. Uh, and uh, the, the creation of man as uh, male or female. And whether or not um, where that specificity of masculinity and femininity, where it resides, both in the individual that has been created or procreated, and in the individual who is doing the generation, the procreation. <coughs> so there is also the issue of where does that power of generation uh, reside and what kind of power is that with respect, and all of this is, it's all, I think it's truly unique with respect to the anthropology of Thomas that, ha that has to do with sexual difference because of the dimorphism of sexuality, this complementarity and this difference. That simply put that all humans are either male or female. And so what kind of an accident is it? And you may notice here that in the first uh, text here that I've indicated from the disputed questions on the soul, it is an inseparable accident is the terminology that Aquinas uses. A lot of authors speak of a proper accident and a lot of uh, authors speak of it being a modality. There's also uh, in scientific literature a very interesting discussion from a neo-Darwinian perspective, so from the perspective of evolutionary biology, the consideration that throughout all of nature, where there is sexual, sexual difference and sexual reproduction, there is, it is always dimorphic. There is no case wherein there is some other kind of arrangement, some other plurality. For instance, you know, some third sex, and here I purposely use the term sex. 
rather than normally people in literature use the term gender, of course. But there is no third sex, there's always two. And uh, uh, this is, of course, the case also for Aquinas, uh, and he observes it in nature, and he considers sex to be an inseparable accident. I was going to you know, quickly go through each of these texts and the relationship, uh, how, why, why they're relevant to, to the issue without uh, attempting in any way to go into them in depth, because each one of these, there's, there's a lot to say and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion. I just want to highlight, highlight the Contra Gentiles text, which is the penultimate here from the uh, second book, uh, question 81 where it's, he speaks of this commensuration or mutual co-adaptation, is where in the literature in English it's uh, translated with respect to the relationship between matter and form. And this is very interesting because the debate's having to do with the question of where is sex? Is it in the body or is it in the soul? Is it in the matter or is it in the form from the Thomistic perspective? And this commensuration <coughs> indicates there's a sense in which it is both in the body and is in the soul. But of course the question uh, remains, and it remains in which is it more prior? And regarding that, there is a lot of debate in the literature, and there are those who, um, well, there, there are some who want to see it more in the soul, uh, but I think most of the authors see it as being more in the body. I'm gonna deal with this a little bit more in the next slides. Uh, but I just want to make a comment about the, the last text there uh, from the Contra Gentiles, book 394, <coughs> in which Thomas speaks of a particular natural power that is in the semen. Now, an issue that I think with respect to sexual difference in Aquinas that is um, really important for us to consider is given uh, St. Thomas's openness to the science and to the data from the empirical world, what would he have said if he had known how this really works, <coughs> given that it's pretty clear that he's drawing from uh, primitive <coughs> biology, and the main problem is that he didn't have micro a microscope, and so nobody up until that time really understood basics, really, of the mechanics, because the human uh, egg, the ova, was entirely uh, absent from their understanding. And of course, uh, St. Thomas draws uh, a lot from, from Aristotle, regarding human generation. And he sees the female as being a kind of field and a receptive, and the male as being the active power planting the seed. And this is very important with respect to sexual difference because it entails that for Thomas there's this tendency to see, with respect to the individual, that the male, insofar as he begets a child that is female, is somehow defective insofar as not bringing about one that is like himself. Whereas, normally in generating one, when I say not like himself, of course, like himself, but somehow also different, and uh, you know, of the same, of the same kind, of the same species, and so forth. But given science that we have on this, where we appreciate that it's actually the human egg that the female provides, or in the case of other species too, which is in many ways much more active and much more perfect and much more endowed with procreative capacity, and the the seed, the semen, actually has much less of a role. And yet it is from the seed, from the semen, that the determination of sexual dif dif difference comes. There are, you, you know, there's X and there's Y chromosomal uh, sperm, and that what, that's what determines the outcome if it's a boy or a girl. Uh, 
I think the same is true with just about all of the other species, certainly with other, uh, other mammals. So I think that, you know, what would Aquinas say with respect to this particular natural power if he knew that the male in his um, reproductive capacity has um, a seed which is either specified particularly as male or female, I think would have actually facilitated things for his anthropology of creation whereby God's design is such that the entire order is perfect from the beginning. And therefore, this is really in terms of the way in which uh, Aquinas reinterprets Aristotle's phrase, mas occasionatus, the so-called uh, the male that's gone because of an accident. Some people say defective male. In, in literature is how they, they translate it. Uh, St. Thomas is careful to say that that's true with respect somehow to the individual and the power, but in the whole order of creation that this was willed by God and that the harmony and the difference in creation is actually perfect, is perfect. And that it's not due to sin, and this difference was prior to sin. But my suggestion here is that if Thomas had known about the egg and about the role of the different kinds of sperm that result in uh, a male or a female, I think that it would have facilitated his emphasis upon the perfection and the harmony of this order of procreation. Now, these are, I mentioned that there's uh, lots of literature in this area. I was very involved with Pia de Solenni and, and her work. I directed this dissertation that she wrote a long time ago, which um, uh, won an award from John Paul II, in which she, she, she suggests a very generous interpretation of Aquinas with respect to the understanding of, of woman and the creation of woman. Uh, but since there's been lots of publications, including very recently, and in preparing for this presentation, I discovered uh, William Newton's uh, recent piece in the Lineker Quarterly, in which he responds to John Finley. Now, so I, I don't know if, if any of you are, are, are familiar with this, with this recent literature. John Finley published in the Thomist an article that I'll get to. I'll show you the, where you see there's Sister Prudence Allen and Marie George. Marie George is actually has <coughs> published articles that, um, in contrast with Pia de Solendi's, work, she holds that St. Thomas really held that women are inferior and are defective in, in some sense. I think, I think that's the proper way of describing it, while at the same time called to the same level of holiness. And so Marie George makes this point very clearly that uh, women are called, uh, and in fact comparing any man to any particular woman, there's no way in which one could say that, well that woman is inferior because she's a woman. But according to Marie George, they are uh, each individual woman is called to the highest levels, and that uh, especially St. Thomas's commentary in the Gospels uh, shows this ability for women, even through their lowliness, is something that she emphasizes, can aspire to the highest degree of holiness. Uh, so there's uh, the, there, there are other authors here, though, like De Solenni, and like William Newton, and like um, Michael Nolan, who hold that uh, who hold that the uh, for, for Aquinas women are not inferior they are entirely equal uh, in dignity uh, to uh, to men and not just each individual woman but also on the whole that women are on the whole equal in dignity to men and therefore that subordination with respect to the headship is the kind of subordination that the church has the bride of Christ with respect to Christ and that it's a, it's a, an order of love between the two, 
a kind of spousal order of love that is ingrained within creation. But let me go to this next slide that uh, is, um, refers to John Finley's article published in the Thomas in 2015, in which the metaphysics of gender, a Thomist <coughs> approach, uh, in which he says that, and it's very interesting, this is addressing the, the question of which the title is of this presentation. So should a Thomas use the word sex, or should he use the word, or she, or they, or whatever, should he use, use the word gender? And here you see that in the title of his article published in the Thomist, and in this uh, affirmation, he uses the word gender. They say, like sensation, gender is a characteristic of the composite substance stemming from the soul, stemming from the soul. Now, uh, in response to, I mean, if you, if you uh, Oh, you can see that, and you can see the, the whole thing. I'm only seeing part of the out of the slide on my screen, but uh, this, in response to this article, the Thomist is this response is from William Newton uh, in the Literature Quarterly just a year ago, in which uh, I think and I find very convincing William Newton's response to Finley, and uh, I think he specifies with uh, real clarity issues having to do with human reproduction and the specificity of the male and the female. So, of course, um, this also has to do with the question of the title of this conference. And regarding the question of the title of this conference, unfortunately, I think Finley uh, shifts in a way between sex and gender that is ambiguous and confusing and lacks lack specificity. But otherwise, I find this article quite con convincing. So he says that the female human is a human individual who has the active potency to develop the organ needed to produce ova. So he goes, in order to, to specify that which is proper to this individuating accident, uh, it uh, is this capability to produce the ova. Then the male human is the human individual who has the active potency to develop the organ needed to produce and deliver sperm. And then Newton affirms here, quite in contrast with Findlay, that generative power is bipotent, and so does not, it does not distinguish male and female as separate species. This isn't entirely a contrast with uh, Finley, but if you notice uh, this affirmation, the formation and actualization is quite detailed, but I think it's uh, analytically helpful. <coughs> the formation and actualization of the matter, namely the emergence of the generative organ, is an effect of the soul via the accident of the generative power, but the matter fully determines whether the resulting organ is male or female. <coughs> Hence, sex is determined by the matter as informed by the soul. It's, uh, I think, pretty complicated, but I find this, this approach convincing to assert that the principle of individuation, which is the matter, is that which determines that this individual is male or female. And that it, yet, at the same time, given that consideration that Thomas makes in the Contra Gentiles that I emphasized in the previous slide, there's that commensuration, a kind of reciprocity between the body and the soul, such that the soul is the soul of this body, and this body is either male or female, and therefore this soul can be set on account of the body, and I think it's on account of the body, on account of the matter, to be feminine or masculine, but it's not a different kind of soul on account of it being the soul of this or that kind of body. Now here, uh, Newton uh, is this is his first footnote to his paper. I will use the word sex more than gender, but I take them to be synonymous, both relating to how an individual contributes to human generation. Maybe this is um, 
uh, kind of an evasion of the issue of whether or not Otoma should use the word sex or if he should use the word gender. Now, I hear from a totally different uh, kind of author, to be careful of, of our timing, um, is Pope Francis and Amoris Laetitia. This is also a very controversial document, but I don't think this particular text would be especially controversial for you. He is uh, denouncing here this challenge posed by various forms of an ideology of gender. So here, in this text, Pope Francis uses the term gender in a pejorative way, and he associates it with the, the noun ideology. And he says that towards the end of this, quote, that it, this ideology of gender with its educational programs and legislative enactments promotes a personal identity and emotional intimacy radically separated from the biological difference between male and female. <coughs> now, I think it's interesting to, there should wait a moment for this, but I think it's interesting to consider where does this ideology of gender come from? And is it just a passing fad or is it a, an important um, feature of our age or of our epoch. It's why I'm, I'm drawing this, this text that may seem kind of out of the blue, but from Chesterton, it's right from the, I think it's particularly eloquent, uh, it's very forceful and certainly opinionated, as Chesterton <coughs> always is, but from the little book, uh, The Dumb Ox, this is right from the, the very end of it, the sequel to St. Thomas, in which Chesterton is looking forward in history beyond Thomas, and he considers the pernicious influences of nominalism, and then he considers the Protestant Reformation, and in particular he considers Luther, and he contrasts Thomas with modernity. And the contrast that he makes is, I think this is really interesting in order to help appreciate uh, where does the ideology of gender come from. The contrast is that for Aquinas, just as for Aristotle, and he, Chester uh, very much brings uh, Aristotle into the discussion, the philosophical approach is one of interest in reality, interest in being, interest in objectivity. Whereas for modern thought, and certainly with the Cartesian turn, although Chesterton doesn't refer to that, the turn to the subject well, with um, methodical doubt, with critique, with the, um, with the cogito, there is a, a move to a greater interest in subjectivity. And he connects that with the Protestant Reformation, as a number of other authors have done. Now, there are successive steps to this um, transition in the, the ages or the epochs of uh, thought, where if one considers just classical thought that's interested in objectivity, reality, being, substances, whether individual or celestial. And then in modernity, there's more of an attention given to the human subject, to subjectivity, to self-consciousness, to awareness. And then in the, the postmodern, there is more of a consideration. I think Freud is maybe a better example of this, of what um, I think is rightly called genealogy. Like, where did these thoughts come from? More than the concern of whether or not these thoughts that we find in our subjectivity are true and correspond to reality. What is their genealogy? And of course, within postmodernity, we also have the critique, the critique of deconstruction. And we also have um, hermeneutics whereby there's the emphasis upon perspective insofar as the awareness of the subject is determined by the perspective from their point of view. Now, uh, typically in post-modernity, that uh, perspective is, is unanchored from any objective reference point. And here we find uh, where this leads to in uh, our day with uh, what Pope Francis calls gender ideology. Uh, can I just see a show of hands? How many people have seen this before? Ah, uh, okay. How many of you have you seen the, uh, 
rainbow unicorn. Oh, okay. Because uh, all those of you who've seen the rainbow unicorn, you're probably aware that this is passe. <coughs> In fact, there's a version 3.3 that I know of, and I think it, it goes on too, and it's been developed. But the gen I'm kind of sad because I kind of I like gingerbread. And I like, uh, I like ginger, I like cookies and rolls at Christmas time. And I think this is kind of cute. Um, and, uh, but he, he, he's, he's been pretty much done away with by, and supplanted by the rainbow unicorn. But of course, notice here that you have the, the genitals in, indicated, and they're indicated in such a way that they don't have to be dimorphic. There is other there's other options. And then there is the little heart, uh, which indicates attraction. And the, of course, on the right-hand side, and this is where the versions, the various versions have developed with respect to trying to overcome any kind of implication that it is merely binary. So all of this is meant to be designed in such a way that it's not heteronormative. It's not, uh, it may be uh, non-binary. And then of course, notice the brain, and the brain is there's pink and the blue side, and something in between. And there's the idea there too is the rainbow, that there's the whole panoply of options with respect to what one thinks of oneself. And then the trace line that goes around it is social expression. So this is really, this figure I think is very um, eloquent in expressing gender ideology, which is this idea that one's genitals and that, which to, that to which one is attracted sexually and that which one thinks oneself is and that by which or how which one expresses oneself in social relations or in attribution, they need not be connected in any way. And of course, this is also used in educational programs with little children, even six years old in many places. So it fits exactly with what Pope Francis is speaking of, of ideological colonization and imposing uh, this on, um, on young people. The rainbow unicorn, by the way, is uh, in terms of the rainbow, it, um, the rainbow is a way of overcoming <coughs> some of the implications that were hard to deal with in the genderbred person having to do with kind of intrinsically binary. And the rainbow just emphasizes that it is a spectrum. And the unicorn is to overcome the accusations of speciesism because this looks like a human, and there's some people who don't identify uh, themselves uh, with the human. And in fact, uh, here's this next step, which this is, I think, really a prescient uh, article. Um, I don't know if, if many of you are familiar with this, a cyborg manifesto, which is in some ways a brilliant piece in encapsulating this idea that uh, we uh, ought not to, actually, we ought to uh, promote uh, an understanding of ourselves such that we are not demarcated in any way from either animals or machines. And this is the cyborg manifesto, such that we can understand ourselves as being mixed uh, with other species, and so that one can identify oneself with another species, one could also be integrated with the machine. I'm pretty sure this was published in 1985, and uh, I think its impact has been kind of slow in arriving, but I really think it was prescient or prophetic because the things that are going on today with Singularity. This is well before the doctrine of singularity. All this is important, I think, because it indicates an understanding of the human being, let's say an anthropology, that is, and here I'm going to try to explain this in a way that I'm going to try to make it coherent, but I'm not, it's hard because I think that it's intrinsically contradictory. Uh, in any case, the idea is that we are really our brains. And the rest of our body is just kind of stuff for us to use. But we're not really our brains either. What we are is that our brains are really powerful because we are animals that have developed evolutionarily through cooking and so forth. So the way that our brains have a lot of mass and we can make lots of calculations such that there's this epiphenomenon of consciousness that is a result of the, of the brain's calculation. So we're not really our brains. 
We're definitely not our bodies. We are consciousness. And this consciousness, though, is kind of a result of this calculation. <clears throat> the implication, therefore, is that we could potentially not live in this body. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? So you could live wherever, including in the cloud. Uh, and the way you know, I could, the way I'm connected here, and I'm using things. I'm using my legs. I could also just go into the iCloud. And there's a movie about this too. It's called Transcendence with Johnny Depp. I haven't seen the movie. I hear it's not a real movie, but uh, it uh, encapsulates this idea of singularity. There's even there is a singularity university in California, and it has branches in other countries, including in Italy. And at my university in Rome, Santa Croce, we actually had a representative from Singularity University come and participate in a philosophical debate that we had. It's um, it's an interesting interesting problem. I know Daniel Dehan has done work that addresses, uh, from a Thomistic perspective, uh, a a response to this um, disembodied understanding of the self that is so prevalent <coughs> in contemporary theory of mind. Um, looking at the time and the need for discussion, I've got some slides here that deal with sort of the history of where gender ideology came from, and it's being rooted in Marxism, and it's being rooted in, well, in feminism, but feminism, there's so many versions of feminism, so many waves of feminism. It comes from the most... Uh, you know, of course, radical versions of, of feminism. But complementarity that we see in Aquinas, though he doesn't quite use that word, I mean, he does speak about this beauty and this harmony that is in nature and in its creation. It's a word that John Paul II used a lot in his Theology of the Body. It is replaced through sin, through the fall, by conflict, and also by an abuse of power. We see this in Scripture, we see it in human history. But a uh, number of feminists have taken up a Marxist approach to analyzing this conflict and this dialectic of power in such a way, and both Marx and Engels have written about this. In fact, they both wrote, and I know that Engels wrote this very explicitly, he wrote that the fundamental structure of oppression in society is not that of capitalism over the, the capitalist over the proletariat. It is rather monogamous marriage that is the fundamental structure of oppression in society. This is a, he has a work on the history of the family, in which he asserts this quite, quite forcefully. And there's a similar uh, expression in, in the Communist Manifesto of Marx. So according to the Marxist um, versions of feminism, there's this, I think it's really a win-lose paradigm. Rather, it's a zero-sum game. And therefore, it's a war between the sexes. And this has led to certain versions of androgynous feminism, where, and I think it certainly leads to this, uh, I think, this horrific uh, notion that was uh, uh, just two days ago in the Supreme Court oral arguments, this idea that pregnancy is, pregnancy without permission for abortion is an imposition from the state upon the woman such that she is kind of enslaved or imprisoned in this condition that impedes her from uh, freely exercising her constitutional rights in the workplace and the family to make her own personal choices. I don't know if you, you followed any of those oral arguments, but that was made very forcefully by the two speakers who were representing the federal government in contrast with, there was, they were representing the federal government, there was a representative of the gover, government of the state of Mississippi, and then there were the Supreme Court justices. It was amazing to hear Amy Coney Barrett, who has five children uh, of her own, actually, and she has two adopted children, and she was challenging the those two speakers uh, regarding the... Uh, the role of adoption in that is um, and safe haven laws that have 
uh, change the legal scenario in the United States since Roe versus Wade and since Casey. In any case, my point is that if one establishes a relationship between human beings as one of a dialectic of power that's based on materialism, uh, one gets one, one gains, the other one loses. Lose, certainly not the view of common good that is throughout uh, the work of Aquinas. This is just a quick uh, representation of certain of what some people call the waves, the three waves of feminism, that there were you know, fundamental basic rights that were obtained, uh, like, for instance, vote and travel and to own property. But then there was a wave that emphasized equality in an androgynous way. That, um, and then there were various multitude of kinds of uh, feminisms of, of difference. And I mentioned queer theory here. I mean, some of those feminisms of difference were uh, some of those authors that uh, McIntyre meant to enter into dialogue with in his uh, Dependent Rational Animals, Why Human Beings Need the Moral Virtues. Uh, the authors that uh, emphasize an ethics of the maternal, of care, of compassion, and uh, atten attention to the vulnerable. But then there are other versions of feminism of difference which tend in the, dire in the direction of queer theory such that any kind of, not difference that is rooted in the body or in sexuality, in biology, but a difference that is rooted in the creativity of the atomistic self. This leads, I think, to queer theory where transgression of social norms becomes the objective, almost the norm. So these are, um, well, John Money had uh, you, you have, you have gender versus embodiment, this kind of tension between you know, gender ideology against the body, against sexuality. There are these different versions across history, if, if you might find this helpful as a kind of um, indication of some of these moments. It's hard to, to set up a real uh, kind of structure, and it's not entirely <coughs> logical, but John Money had a very linguistic, uh, linguistically important role in inventing the term gender, the way it's often used today, and also inventing orientation, like sexual orientation, the way it's used today. And of course, he's now um, infamous and notorious for his um, experimenting on boys and really uh, uh, malpractice and abuse on boys that led to, to suicide. And when he, when he was claiming that he was demonstrating his theories that um, also entailed the defense of pedophilia. But with respect to gender as entirely deracinated, uh, unbound for the body. There is, um, if, you, if you notice these authors here, this, this one who's a trans um, woman, Kate Bernstein, uh, gender outlaw on men, men, women, and the rest of us, where she's like following up on the on Engels's proposal regarding oppression. Women wouldn't be, couldn't be oppressed if there was no such thing as woman. woman. Doing away with gender is the key to doing away with patriarchy which is like a really radical position with respect to gender, because in, in a sense, she's not a gender theory, uh, ide ideologue. She's against gender. We should entirely do away with it, uh, because we're all should be uh, not constrained by our bodies. And that's this Lee Force Foster in her choreographies of gender. She really affirms, and of course, Judith Butler has many writings about this, that gender is like <coughs> a dance, a ballet. At any moment, one should be free to be whom one wants to create oneself to be aside from one's own embodiment. Simone de Beauvoir, I mentioned here, I mean, she says that women are not born women, they become women through a social construct, through a kind of development of their social identity. Um, so, Pope Francis, however, in this other passage, in Amoris Laetitia, uh, also mentions towards the end, you know, he, here at the beginning of this quote, 
he uh, mentions gender ideology again. But then towards the end, he says, must be emphasized that biological sex and the sociocultural role of sex, in parentheses gender, can be distinguished but not separated. So here he uses the word gender in a way that it seems to be positive. And this is my proposal today is the answer of yes. Atomists should use the word gender, and should use the word gender, though not the way the ideologues use the word gender, but in a way that, and here I use this term transmodern, and uh, I mentioned McIntyre as a possibility here, as a way of reading Aquinas, taking into account the role of the subject, the role of hermeneutics, the role of perspective, the role of history, the role of narrative, but while being principal, principally interested, just like Aristotle and Aquinas, in reality, in being an objectivity but trying to incorporate into this living tradition that is Thomism, the best components of science, <coughs> history, experience, sociology, and psychology, including brain science, uh, neurology. So according to this, uh, there would be my proposal, we need to distinguish carefully uh, between sex and gender. They're intimately related, of course. Now sex refers to biological sex, and it refers, of course, to reproduction. But gender includes biological sex and identity and expression and attribution. And all this depends upon the circumstances and social relationships. This is my proposal. Now, a component of my proposal is very much related to, and I need to mention really the issue of intersex. Uh, should be helpful also to mention gender dysphoria. Gender dys dysphoria, which used to be called gender identity disorder, and in the DSM-5 is now called gender dysphoria. So gender dysphoria, according to this view that I just presented here, according to gender theory, these new categories, gender dysphoria is the condition of someone who has a self-awareness, a way of being in a relationship with others that doesn't correspond appropriately with their biological sex. This is entirely different from intersex, which is a condition, a biological condition, a medical condition, in which someone is not, um, has a, has a anormality with respect to their masculinity or femininity from a medical biological point of view. And these are just some of the possible conditions that are called intersex, these uh, various features. If you look at them like very quickly, from a chromosomal perspective, genetically, <coughs> an individual has a Y or doesn't have a Y. And that's pretty much the determination if they're female or male, if they have a Y or not. And there are, um, if you notice the third line here has been in the news a lot because of athletes who compete in the Olympics and in other competitions as females mm -hmm. and yet have perhaps, and this gets really complicated because it has to do with privacy issues, uh, whether or not we have full information about them. And there's some famous athletes, for instance, there's an athlete from South Africa who won the eight years ago, I think. It was the Rio de Janeiro Olympics, won the, uh, it was only four years ago or six years ago won the, uh, the uh, 800 meters uh, gold medal. And, um, well, this individual is called Castro Semenya. And I see individual to avoid using pronoun um, because um, it seems that uh, Castro Semenya was misidentified at, at birth as a girl and always grew up thinking to be a girl, but uh, seems to, uh, to have from the, the, the uh, actually, the, the data indicates partial androgen insensitivity syndrome. And this is really important because if you look at a photograph of Castro Semenya, uh, Castro Semenya is quite muscular, muscular and was um, 
there's certain races and competitions in which Caster just dominates among the girls. Uh, but and it, that seems to be uh, indicative of the androgen insensitivity syndrome is partial and, and not complete that in some parts of her body which are useful for that kind of sport it is sensitive to the androgen hormones and therefore develops them. <clears throat> now uh, according to my proposal of gender theory which uh, you know, considers intersex to be a medical condition and it's, uh, this isn't any kind of judgment of people um, probably not the only one here who is myopic, which is a disease of the eye, and I do something to correct it, uh, wear, wear glasses and other things, used to wear contact lenses, and it's a disease, and it's uh, measurable, and it's something that's abnormal in terms of visual acuity. Maybe many of you wear contact lenses aren't that many, as many glasses I would have thought from professors. Uh, so the biological definition of life indicates individual of a species, who is growing, has grown, matures, and develops all of its specific properties, and including the ability to reproduce, to uh, produce offspring. And uh, therefore, also from an evolutionary perspective, thriving of life indicates the ability to disperse one's uh, genotype into the environment through reproduction. So the normal characteristics of a healthy human are those that constitute human flourishing and fecundity. And this is true uh, both at the individual level and at the social level. And therefore it entails having the genetics that are normal, having the epigenetics that are normal. Of course here, I say normal, everybody has, I think everybody has defects in these areas, so it's, there's nothing judgmental or there's nothing immoral about someone who has some difficulty here. Uh, there's lots of uh, diseases that are related to genetics, even more they're related to epigenetics. And then the morphology that develops consequent to healthy genetics, it depends on the environment, including the genitalia. Uh, all of this, like, uh, in terms of secondary characteristics, you know, the, the, the sex organs, the, the ability to produce uh, the, the gametes for reproduction, but then secondary characteristics, or it could be so uh, simple as male pattern baldness that uh, is a sign of uh, virility. Uh, and yet it's really interesting because it comes uh, from the genes from one's mother. Uh, it's on the X chromosome, and, and yet it expresses when one has a lot of testosterone. Uh, so that's, uh, of course, having a beard is more common among men. It's not very common among women. These are secondary sex characteristics. But my proposal is that the, there are also characteristics that manifest in affectivity and desires and even in knowledge. Such that I think it's really interesting insight that this multiplicity, this harmony that we find in nature, uh, this diversity between man and woman is indicative of the even relationality that we find in the Blessed Trinity. And it's indicative of this openness to the other and also our finitude that neither man nor woman has the full perfection. And therefore, man and woman come together to reproduce. So a man can't have a child on his own and a woman can't have a child on her own, except there's some really odd new technologies that are being developed for women to perhaps be able to do so uh, in the future. Um, so if a man, if men and women come to be parents through one another, it's also interesting that that which is highest in the order of the human being, and that which specifies as a, us especially as being created in the image of God, is our knowledge, our intellect. We also come to know through one another, and that complementarity is also found there. So um, uh, science 
uh, hard science, especially today. So, so, you know, like there are um, gender in gender ideology, they'll say, well, yeah, science can say things about sex, about male and female, but they don't say things about man and woman, which is a choice. So they'll say that an individual who is biologically male can choose to be a woman. And of course, that's what they call a trans woman, uh, who's biologically not female. On the other hand, sometimes those same people who propose that are also involved in the science. And in the hard science of sexual dimorphism, it's really clear, and there's a lot of research that's developing very quickly, especially in the area of the brain. Also, in, with respect to the, the eye. There's also more and more research in the sociological area, having to do the difference between men and women, boys and girls. I just saw recently, this, is a, this was totally new data for me, but shark attacks. Did you know that uh, there is gender disparity, I should say sexual disparity, with respect to the victims of shark attacks? And, and it pretty much maps out with the same percentage as uh, deaths by drowning. Uh, there are over 80% of children who die drowning are boys. And some might say, well, that's because girls swim better. <laughs> but it seems not to be the case. Uh, it seems to be the case that boys are more prone to risk. And uh, you're like, I'll race you across the lake, see who can swim farther out in the ocean, that kind of thing. Uh, it seems that this is, one could think that sharks are attracted to boys and men somehow, but it's probably simply that boys and men tend to put themselves in more danger with respect to sharks. If you understand, I haven't seen the data on lightning strikes, but it'd be, it would be interesting to see if there's also uh, sexual gender disparities they say with respect to lightning strikes. I bet there is some because it's, oh, yeah, let's climb up on the mountain in the middle of a storm to see what the lightning looks like up on the rock. I think uh, boys are tend to do that more than girls. Uh, there's, there's tons of evidence about that and how um, um, danger uh, and risk uh, affects, because of hormonal condition, um, men different than women. And this is very much related to these final consideration I want to make before concluding, which is hard science tells us all this about the human being, the difference between boys and girls, men and women. And it tells us also with respect to cooperation, competition, risk appraisal, use of vocabulary. The area of vocabulary I've studied a little bit and it's really complicated. There's some people who claim that women use more words than men. Uh, but from what I can tell, it's really not true. Uh, <laughs> There's, uh, I think there's more evidence that women more, use more complex vocabulary. Uh, they, they've actually done studies where they put microphones on people 24-7 and, and listen to them and gather all, <laughs> gather all the data. You know, tremendous privacy invasion, <laughs> but people signed up for this. Uh, well, that, that's an area I'm, I'm not sure what to say. It's actually really complicated. Um, but I think a really interesting thing to, to get data from and, and to study. So here, uh, there are psychological differences, of course, that has to do with social roles and personality traits. Now, these are the big five personality traits that psychologists study. And so a lot of people would tend to just throw themselves into this and say, oh, well, then these traits, there must be some that are more female, more feminine, and ones that are more masculine. And so here you see openness, neuroticism, agreeableness, extroversion, conscientiousness. And typically, it's said, and it's true, that women tend to be more neurotic in the sense of the personality trait of being more... Um, more concerned about um, keeping things safe, keeping everything in its place, keeping things the same. Also, agreeableness. Women tend to be more agreeable in general. In general, 
But if you if you go down deeper into the data, well, let me first say this this is like I'm, I'm kind of on the surface of what the data looks like. And notice my color coding. The pink is uh, more prevalent among females. The blue is more prevalent among males. Uh, so <coughs> this is an article from 2001 from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. But if you notice openness, there's openness to feelings, there's openness to ideas. So right here, there's a what they call aspects of traits. I mean, it seems like you know, if you go back here, you're on a wild goose chase to try to say, well, what's more proper than men and what's more proper than women? And I think Aquinas would enjoy this conclusion, that instead you have to look at something deeper and more specific and more like what kind of neuroticism, what kind of agreeableness, what kind of openness, what kind of assertiveness. There's a recent study about how uh, men and women um, respond in their neurochemistry to uh, infants. And that apparently men become less aggressive and more comforting, and women become more aggressive. And I mean, it would seem to be connected with defense and protection, the whole mama bear kind mm -hmm. of um, uh, thing about, about women. Now here, this is a pretty recent study that's super interesting. There, there, there's, some, there's some really interesting studies having to do with finger length and uh, sex hormones, that it's actually comparative finger length. Um, Andrew Huberman, who's a neurobiologist and ophthalmologist at Stanford University, as, as was involved in some of these studies. But it's the relationship between the ring finger, no, it's the middle finger, and the, I think it's the middle finger and the index finger, that um, has to do with the um, uh, amount of testosterone, it seems, maybe, in a period of development of the fetus in utero. There's a lot of things that go way back to what the fetus experienced during gestation, and the hormone, including the hormones he received from his mother, or her mother, affects tremendously features of the boy and the girl. Uh, the other thing, there's this other really er odd area of study which, that's called autoacoustics, which is their ears produce noises, apparently. And this is true even in infants, even in, in, the, in the womb, and apparently there's sex difference there. So this is one of, the, one of the odd areas where people are studying and trying to understand where it comes from. Now this, uh, in a sense, uh, I've already indicated here in the slide, you've been looking at it, uh, this, they did this cooperation study, and it was a very simple kind of task that was very empirically set up with, uh, to be um, a randomized controlled test in which they had, well first a man alone and a woman alone, and a man and a man, and then a woman and a woman, and then they had a man and a woman. And they did this with uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging things are looking at their brain activity and they found that a part of the brain lit up when there was a man and, and a woman cooperating that didn't light up in the other circumstances which is fascinating and suggestive and I think could be, have to do with parenting and cooperation and complementarity uh, the, but they, 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 don't, they don't arrive at, at, any, at any conclusions it didn't, so, I mean, there's some, it didn't seem to have anything to do with you might, uh, you know, I think it has something to do with libido or some kind of sexual attraction I don't, it seems like they set it up in such a way that it would have been independent from that so there's, my proposal <coughs> is that there's sex and then there's these other features like identity social mm -hmm. attributions and there's also virtues and Atoma should be interested in those features or those traits of features I should say features of traits of virtues, the classical virtues that for a Thomist can be looked at as being 
tending to be statistically more masculine, tending to be statistically more feminine, needing to be nurtured in formation, especially in boys or especially in girls. But one ought to take into account, I think, that all of these perfections, the feminine and the masculine, are perfections, and they're human perfections, and they make us more like God the more one possesses them, all of them. And um, the neurobiology has to do with how we respond. Here I, I indicate traits for thriving, so a full human life, flourishing as individuals, and pair bonding for the family, in larger organizations. And this is related to learning how, as men or as women, we deal with, for instance, stress. There's a lot of really interesting literature on stress that is very related to virtue. That if there's an objective stressor, depends a whole lot how you handle it internally. And this is, they call it appraising the objective stressor. And if you see it as an opportunity, the neurochemical bath of your brain, and um, also the, the hormonal endocrinological bath of your heart, is totally different. If you are seeing the stress as something, oh, this is terrible, woe is me, I want to get out of this, as opposed to, oh, this is an opportunity for growth, this is a challenge, this is exciting. And then there's another feature. If you see it as, oh, I should ask for somebody for help, or I should help somebody because they're experiencing this as a challenge too. There's another whole injection of neurochemicals that are tremendously also related to virtue because you're thinking of the others, you're perhaps making an act of charity. So it's like if you're in trouble and you offer to help someone, there is a secretion of oxytocin in both men and women that is protective of the heart. So it used to be the case that stress was considered to be, chronic stress was considered to be dangerous for your cardiovascular health and it's going to kill you. It's now become the status quo in science that if you try to avoid it, it's going to kill you. If you embrace it, not. Now, I, I think this is tremendously interesting for, from a perspective of virtue and prudence of how we, you know, in psychology today they call it reframing. But you can simply consider it prudence or for Thomas, informing. Because the intellect should inform practical reason with the end. And making present the end, the do end, can order all of one's habits in such a way that they are really conducive to human thriving. And here we see the two human bodies that are alive in heaven that <coughs> exemplify for us masculine and feminine virtue. This is Santa Maria Trastevere. The, some people say it's the oldest parish dedicated to Our Lady. It's uh, you know, in Rome. And this is from right around 1100. And uh, if you notice, Jesus and Mary are on the same height, the same bench. It was kind of scandalous at the time, but eventually accepted. I look forward to comments and questions. If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to Talking Thomism. Thanks for listening. Talking Thomism is a production of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. The Center for Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. To find out more, please visit us at www.stthom.edu/cts.